Almost 10 years ago, my brother talked my husband, all my siblings, and I into running a marathon. What started as a half joke, half dare, has turned into a decade of solid, sweaty fun. In that time, we've run who knows how many full marathons, half marathons, relays, 10Ks, 5Ks, and turkey trots, which is quite a feat from a group who are by no means athletic. And in the process, we have created some of my very favorite memories and forged a bond that I am so very thankful for. Just as in quilting, with each pattern bringing unique challenges and enjoyments, each race presents itself as a mixed bag of opportunities, full of pros and cons. And while I will never miss the chance to run a relay with my family, it is the marathon where I have learned the most about my siblings and myself. I remember training for that first marathon. We read books and articles and we talked to everyone we knew and everyone had advice. Stay hydrated, don't get waterlogged, bust it in the first half, save your energy for the last half, and on and on. But the advice that proved most useful went something like this. Approach every marathon as a unique experience. Train for it and prepare, but don't expect anything. You never know what's going to happen on race day. Your training will be important for you to be able to finish the race, but no marathon will turn out like you expect. So go in prepared and then just do your best and enjoy the adventure. And even though, like I said, that advice proved to be the most useful, at the time I received it, I disregarded it as the crazy talk of my neighbor. Because seriously, if I trained and was prepared, I knew exactly what to expect in my marathon. I was going to be jogging down 26.2 miles through a canyon I knew and loved while listening to my running music. And then I'd wrap up my morning with a victory breakfast after crossing the finish line. It was going to be epic. And so we trained and we ran and read and ran and talked and ran and hydrated. And before we knew it, the morning of our first marathon had arrived. And I discovered that I had only been right about one thing. This race would be epic. I remember the ride up to the start line at 4 a.m. in an old school bus full of gassy, spandex-wearing adults. I remember the dark sky and the bonfires at the start line, and I remember when it began to rain, and then snow. I remember being frozen and soaked clear through before the race even began. I remember the slap, slap, slapping of my husband's borrowed windbreaker, three sizes too big and dripping wet. Slap, slap, slapping against my legs as I ran, as well as the squish, squish, squishing of the water through the mesh in my shoes with every step that I took. Conditions along the course became worse as construction mixed with the sudden weather caused a small landslide to smear a long uphill portion of the road with mud and rocks that soon collected on my shoes, calves, and backside. The cold triggered my Raynaud syndrome, which turned first my fingers and then my hands a pale yellow and left them numb, which in turn left me unable to pull up my own pants or unlock the door of the honey bucket at mile 13, 
which is a tale in and of itself for a different time. All the water shorted out my Apple device, which meant no music, just the sound of my labored breathing as I slogged along down the cold, wet, and muddy road. This, this mess of a day was not what I had signed up for. It's not what I had trained for. Where was my lovely victorious June morning that I had spent months preparing for? This is Elizabeth and Liz from Simple Simon and Company, and you are listening to Stitched. Today's episode is sponsored by Baby Lock. Samples are a terrific invention. Who doesn't love wandering down the aisle of a grocery store and being offered a free sample of something? Would I like to try these brand new chips? Sure I would. How about comparing different flavored barbecue sauces? Sign me up. And what about tasting these locally grown organic apple slices? You betcha. It's great not only because it's free, but because samples introduce consumers to new products, that they can test and try out for themselves before they make a commitment. And then if they do like the sampled product, it can become a regular in their pantry or fridge. Sampler quilts hold much of the same appeal as the free sample. Sampler quilts are quilts made up of a variety of completely different blocks that allow the quilter to try numerous different techniques and patterns while constructing each unique block. Blocks in these quilts are created one at a time until enough blocks have been made that can be sewn together with or without sashing to create an entire quilt top. Once specific quilt skills are learned in the creation of each individual block, they can then be used over and over again in different quilts and in the arrangement of the quilter's choice. During sampler quilt construction, Quilters often find that the techniques used in one or two of the blocks are their favorite, while other techniques or processes are ones that they will probably be avoiding in future projects. Sampler quilts with their non-repeating blocks are great for beginning quilters, those who want to learn new skills, for group quilts where everyone chooses a block they are confident in creating, or for an advanced quilter to simply showcase her skill set. Today's episode is sponsored by Baby Lock. Baby Lock's new genuine collection features sewing machines that start at just $99. Whether you're interested in sewing, quilting, serging, or home decor, there's a genuine collection machine that's perfect for you. Last summer, we were given a sneak peek of this new line of machines and have been excited to see them arriving in local shops. With so many different features and a wide price range, there should be a machine within this collection to meet the needs of just about any sewist, from beginner to experienced. To learn more about this new line of machines, just visit babylock.com backslash genuine. That's babylock.com backslash genuine. Now, back to our story. Sampler quilts are uniquely American. Up until the early 19th century, most quilts that were being constructed took their design sense from European quilts, where medallion quilts were all the rage. 
Medallion quilts are quilts where the design and construction start in the middle and radiate outward, giving the quilt a central focal point. However, beginning in the 1800s, American quilters began laying out quilt designs that featured blocks of the same size, but not always the same pattern. These blocks were laid out in a grid-like pattern, and the use of two different block patterns was a popular design. This grid-like pattern with interchangeable blocks quickly became a staple of quilting and led to the rise of sampler quilts, which are still popular today all over the world. Sampler quilts were originally a very practical quilt for those just learning the art of quilting. At this time, America was a country on the move, and many young women chose to build their lives far from the homes they were raised in. These sampler quilts, which taught them a variety of skills, could be taken with them on their journeys and served as an introduction sheet of sorts to remind them of the different skills and patterns that could be employed in future quilts even when they no longer had access to the women who had taught them how to create each block. A few of these precious sampler quilts made in the 1800s have survived and can be seen in museums today, but by the turn of the century, their popularity began to fade as the need for quilting began to lessen. However, they experienced a strong resurgence in the 1980s, and today with the rise of Block of the Month clubs, most quilters have at least one or two of these sampler quilts finished and in their arsenal. Though styles, fabrics, and patterns change, the reason that these sampler quilts have been so endearing hasn't changed much at all. Some of the reasons that we have found make this type of quilt a continued favorite include the variety. At times, quilters find that creating the same block over and over again can be monotonous, but sampler quilts have no two blocks alike. This keeps quilters on their toes and with the seemingly endless supply of quilt block patterns, sample quilts can be made over and over again without any repeating designs. Sampler quilts are also great for those at any skill level, from novices to advanced quilters. Today, these quilts are a great way for the beginning quilter to try out, practice, and master new quilting techniques. Notwithstanding, they are also a terrific way for an advanced quilter to make a showpiece quilt that highlights her quilting prowess. And finally, sample quilts are a perfect way to use up the scraps that we all have piled up in our sewing rooms. Most sampler blocks only require a small amount of fabric, and the designs lend themselves nicely to a scrappy, colorful look. Nowhere else but in sampler quilts can such a wide range of skill and designs be found. So whether it has been sewn up as a learning tool, a showpiece, a scrap buster, a quilt block of the month club, or a group project, it is no wonder that these sample quilts have survived and thrived in our quilting history for more than two centuries. At about mile 15 of that first race, I was ready to call it a day. I was wet, chafing, tired, and frozen stiff. I had trained and studied so hard, but I wasn't prepared for these conditions. I felt defeated, frustrated, and very alone. And then two firemen came jogging up from behind. They stayed with me for the next few miles. They made me laugh and changed my attitude. 
At mile 18, I saw some people up ahead on the side of the road holding a poster that said, Goonies never say die. And I thought, I bet I'd be friends with those people. As I came closer, I realized I was right. Those people were in fact my two sweet friends standing in the rain with a poster, a Dr. Pepper, and some potato chips. It was the best thing ever. Coming into the finish line, I spotted my dad in the bleachers watching for me. And when I crossed the finish line, there was my husband and brother waiting to celebrate with me. As we anxiously waited for my other brother and sister, the sun came out and I peeled off that wet jacket to reveal what I had written on my arm the night before. The names of 26 people that I love, one for each mile of the race. Later that night, as my entire family and I walked into the Sizzler for some dinner, dry and warm, and wearing our race medals like big old goobers, I looked around and realized something. No, I hadn't prepared for that particular race day scenario, but I was prepared enough to have survived it. And, also, even more importantly, that I had never been alone. Sure, physically I had run the race alone, but I had been helped along by the kindness of strangers, the support of friends, and the knowledge and experience I had gained from my family, and those 26 names that still remained as a ghostly shadow along my arm. More than a decade has passed since that first marathon, and the only runners, and I use that word loosely, Left are my two brothers and I, and with every race I learn something new, something to add to the patchwork of my life. And the relationship with my siblings is stitched ever tighter. Because even though we don't run the race side by side, we are all out there on the course together, with the same goal of making it safely and triumphantly to the finish line. I like to think of those first women arriving out on the frontier, working to build a home and a community, and starting a new quilt for that very first time. Feeling alone, unprepared, and maybe frustrated, but then pulling out their sampler quilts, running their fingers over its stitches, and having the same realization that I had the night after my first race the realization that they were prepared enough to survive and that they would never be alone. For more stories, projects, and quilt tutorials, visit us over at www.simplesimonandco.com where you can find scores of quilting patterns and inspiration. Thanks for listening. And if you have a minute please leave us a comment or a review, especially if you're listening on iTunes. It only takes a few clicks, but it helps us out a lot. Now, stay tuned for I've Got a Notion. The history of the zipper is a long story that involves a series of inventors. Its origins begin back in the 19th century with Isaiah's Howe a name you might be familiar with as the inventor of the sewing machine. He claimed a patent on his automatic continuous clothing closure in 1851, and although it was a great idea, he was too busy marketing the sewing machine to promote it. 
Forty years later, Howe's invention was rediscovered and improved upon by a man named Whitcomb Judson, who renamed the clever new closure as the clasp locker. Although it was basically just a complicated series of hook and eye fasteners, it was an improvement on Howe's design. He felt, however, that instead of using it to fasten clothing with, it would be best to use as a closure for shoes. To market and produce his new product, he started the Universal Fastener Company and then debuted his fancy new class blockers at the famous 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. Unfortunately, unlike many of the other ideas shown at this particular World's Fair, such as Cracker Jack, the Ferris wheel, spray paint, and the dishwasher, it didn't enjoy much success. Fast forward 20 years. The Universal Fastener Company, located in Hoboken, New Jersey, was still in business, and working there was a man named Gideon Sundback, who had an idea. Gideon was a Swedish-born immigrant who began working at the factory, became the lead designer, and married the plant manager's daughter. Sadly, when his wife died, Gideon retreated away from the factory and back to his designing table. But that's where he sparked on the idea of how to not only improve upon the fasteners his company was currently making, but how to build the machines needed to create the pieces of his new closures. His idea was brilliant. He took the existing clasp lockers and increased the number of fastening elements from 4 per inch to 10 per inch. Then he gave it two rows of interlocking teeth that would latch together with the help of a slider. Gideon received a patent for what he called the separable fastener in 1917, and this evolving closure became the beginning of what we know the zipper to look like today. Soon after receiving this patent, the B.F. Goodrich Company began using Gideon's separable fasteners on the rubber boots they were producing, but decided to call these new fasteners something a little more catchy, and the name zipper was born, and it stuck. However, from the time of the zipper's christening, it would still be almost another 20 years before they would be incorporated into clothing. They were only used primarily for boots and tobacco pouches until, in the 1930s, a campaign was launched that used zippers in children's clothing. These garments were marketed as clothing that would promote children's self-reliance by making it easier for them to dress themselves. And the advertising worked. The next boost that the humble zipper received came in 1937 when French fashion designers announced that zipper flies were the newest tailoring idea for men and Esquire magazine claimed that the zipper fly would put an end to the possibility of unintentional and embarrassing disarray in men's trousers. From that point on, the zipper's destiny was sealed. Today, zippers can be seen everywhere on all types of clothing, luggage, shoes, purses, and countless other items. And it's hard to imagine a world without the zipper helping us to hold everything together. Thanks for listening.